to all you fish enthusiasts out there. Whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week, your audio almanac of all the fish. It's Monday, May 1st, 2023, and we're on a week-by-week tour of fish across the country with guests from all walks of life. I'm Katrina Liebeck with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska. And I'm Guy Hero, and this week to celebrate World Tuna Day, we're going to be talking about tunas with a guest from Hawaii. And we know many people around the world depend heavily on tuna for food security. They're a culturally very important fish, economic heavyweight, and also a big draw recreationally. And while the majority of our episodes tend to be focused on freshwater and anadromous fishes, we feel like tuna are really important fishes for folks to be familiar with and respect. And with us today, we have a very special guest bringing perspective from Hawaii. We have William Isla. So aloha. Good morning, Katrina and Guy. Aloha. To help us set the stage for our conversation, can you give us a feel for what tuna species are around the Hawaiian islands and what their Hawaiian names are as well? The predominant tuna species that interact with with fishermen on a daily basis are the yellowfin tuna, which is called ahi. And then there's a closely related species called the big-eye tuna, which is also called ahi. And then there's a skipjack tuna, which is called aku. And the skipjack tuna is probably the most important ingredient in all of those tuna cans that you see because skipjack tuna and young juvenile albacore are predominantly the fish that go into those cans. Okay. We also have some albacore, but it's it likes cold water better, so it stays further north. And then every once in a while, there is a Pacific bluefin tuna that shows up, which is rare. But it keeps the hope of every fisherman in Hawaii <laughs> alive that they might be able to catch something in the 600-pound range. They are huge. They're the biggest, correct, out of all those ones you just mentioned? They don't get as big as the Atlantic side, but they get to six, seven, eight hundred pounds. So That's crazy. In what ways are tuna important to the people of Hawaii? Pre-contact times, tuna were very important because it was a major source of protein. Remember now, at that time, we didn't have a lot of large mammals that would provide protein. So birds and you know turtles and pigs were the predominant mm-hmm. form of protein outside of the ocean. So mm-hmm. tuna, because of the size and because of their fecundity and quick growth rates, were a very sustainable fishery. From a cultural perspective, when a high priest from Tahiti came to Hawaii, there were two fish that are credited with providing protection and saving this high priest. His name was Pa'au, and mm-hmm. the fish that followed him from Tahiti were the opelo, which is macroscad, or the Aku, which is a skipjack tuna. And these tuna were associated with protecting him from storms. Now, if you've ever been at sea and you are in rough waters and the tuna school that surrounds you is large enough, it can actually calm the waters. So all those tuna swimming in unison at the surface can actually calm the waters around your vessel. So it's very easy to see that, you know, this traditional story that comes from about 1100 AD is certainly possible. (laughs) And so, in fact, these two fish played important roles in terms of what was kapu or, you know, placed a restriction on. They rotated six months, Opelo was able to be caught and six months, Aku was able to be caught. that's cool. Directly, you know, related to conservation. Yeah, that's awesome. Very cool. 
So normally when I'm thinking about fish that go into cans, I'm thinking that that meat is generally of lower quality than the fish that you might use for, you know, take the fillets or use them for sushi. Is that the case with these tunas too? Yes. It's also because they're smaller or juvenile members of these species that are caught mainly by purseiners. The larger fish, if they're caught by purseiners and longliners, are actually loined and will go into the fresh frozen, fresh tuna market, which is big in Hawaii, but also big in Asia and, you know, part of the sushi menu. I can tell you there's nothing like fresh tuna. I mean, generally you leave it in the refrigerator overnight and that removes some of the crunchiness that is associated with super fresh tuna, but put it in the refrigerator overnight and then it has that nice sort of creamy sashimi texture that a lot of people in Hawaii, especially because we have a large Asian population desire. Hawaiians have a dish called poke, and I think it's known around the world now, right? I was going to ask you about poke and kind of the tradition (laughs) around that. That was a kind of a traditional dish, correct? And it's really expanded and taken on all different types of flavors from different cultures coming in. But yeah, could you tell us a little bit more about poke? Sure. Basically, poke is any fish that's cubed up and then served in traditional times with limu, certain kinds of seaweed, and a relish made with salt and kukui nuts. So the candle nut tree, the kukui nut is roasted and crushed and mixed with salt. And those things are mixed with a traditional limu poke dish here in Hawaii. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, with all the different cultures that have arrived, we have You know, everything from oyster sauce poke to kimchi poke to Mm -hmm. you name it. I'm sure there's more experimentation occurring and I'm sure in other parts of the world, I wouldn't be surprised if there's curry poke somewhere. That would be good. (laughs) Can you talk a little bit about the evolution of the fishery for tuna in Hawaii going back to when these first people arrived there? Because you're talking about, you know, some of these really big fish, six, seven hundred pounds and possibly back in the day, I can imagine that having the watercraft and the gear to catch those might be challenging and then how that's changed into the modern fishery. We can start with ancient times. I mean, the average fisherman launching his canoe from the beach would go out to areas called a fishing koa, so areas that are well known where these various tuna show up. And of course, they would be fishing with hand lines that were braided either you know, from a number of different plants, olona, a coconut. And of course, fish hooks were made out of bone at that time. So you had to take your time to construct these Polynesian type hooks. In fact, I'm fairly confident that the circle tuna hooks that we use today are directly copied from the Polynesian sort of curved hooks. What kind of bone were they using to make the hooks? Yeah. What kind of bone? Generally, the strongest bones that they had at the time were from pig or from whale. Okay. Um, Wow. If you were a ranking chief, you might obtain human bones from your competitors. And mm-hmm. oftentimes those bones would be used to make fish hooks. It was a form of sort of disrespect from mm-hmm. the person who was fortunate enough to be the, the winner of the battle. So bone fish hooks had to be very strong. Sometimes the larger fish hooks in catching large sharks were bone tipped, but made out of primarily strong wood like kawila. The average fisherman would probably set off in the canoe, either one two-man canoe, go offshore to a fishing koa, and um, likely take what we call palu, everyone else calls chum, out, or maybe catch some of the 
akule or opello that I discussed earlier for live bait, put it on a hook, drop it down <laughs> and wait for a strike. And uh, yellowfin tuna and big eye tuna is interesting because the names come from fire or heat. And it was a result of the line being pulled out of the basket, being held against the side of the canoe to slow the fish's run down, often creating smoke. Dang. So I read they, about that. That's cool. That's how these two fish get their names, right? Because okay. of the way that they caught them. So, you know, the average fisherman would go out and catch smaller fish in the three to 80 pound range. And if lucky, you know, catch something 100, 200 pounds. But then you also had the sort of chiefly line who had their large double hull canoes who would send out their retainers to capture live bait who or anchovy that we have in Hawaii. And they would carry these malu, or it was called like a live bait canoe between the canoe. And then they would go offshore to these koa and then they would use this live bait to chum. And then they would use a pole and line similar to what you see on the... Um, we call them aku boats in Hawaii, but they use a long pole with artificial lure. They chum mm. and they flip these fish over their shoulders. And so the ali'i would, would have a little bit more sophisticated fishing technique for all of the tunas. You know, I remember stories about Zane Gray talking about fighting a tuna for 14 hours or something like that. How long did it take for these guys to get their tuna in? So he's fighting, you know, Atlantic. He's fighting the 700-pound <laughs> fish, but... <laughs> Yeah, or a thousand pounds, right? So yeah, that's like fighting a thousand pound marlin. It could take you overnight. I've known some fishermen to be in fights for almost 24 hours on some of these large fish. So generally a yellowfin tuna or a big eye tuna in the two to up to 300 pound range is generally like a two hour event. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Huh. Is it just one guy fights it or do they hand it off and take turns or something like that? Yeah. If you are in an IGFA tournament, one guy fights it. Nobody else can touch the pole, the line. They can touch the fisherman and swivel it around. I had the opportunity 25 years ago to fish in a light line tournament in Kona. And it was a friend of mine's turn. Three hours he fought that tuna on 30-pound tests. Oh, my um, gosh. Wow. We didn't do anything except, you know, splash ice water on him and... Um, <laughs> Give him a cup of water to drink. His he muscles were sore. All by itself. I looked over the side and there was these oceanic trigger fish. And they were so curious about the line where it was going on the surface. And all they had to do was like nick it. And, you know, we would have lost that oh fish. Oh my gosh. Yeah, because they got them teeth on them. I thought real quickly, I grabbed a bunch of ice from the cooler and threw it in the water and they swam <laughs> off. They swam off, you know, interested in the ice. So that, huh. you know, remember that technique out there, ice. Huh. The, the biggest fish I ever caught was the halibut. It was like 120 pounds. And man, that was very good workout that's, on the arms. I cannot imagine a two or three hour fight with something. And keeping the pole, you know, bent over because that's yeah. the only way you're going to tire that fish is the... by making the rod make the fish tired. Yeah. Man, you got a spunky tuna. They are the hardest fighting fish in my experience. It fights all the way to the boat. I bet you it probably fights once it's on the deck too. Do you get the tuna jitters? Oh, you have to watch out and make sure your leg doesn't get hit or something? Yeah. And, you know, if you're going to eat it, you don't want it to bruise, right? So you got to dispatch it as quickly as possible and get it on ice. So we take our tuna, it's very serious in Hawaii. So we high quality, get it iced and get it ready to eat for the next day. How do you dispatch them? Do you bonk them on the head or what do you do? The bigger tunas, sometimes 
bonking them on the head is not enough. You bring them in the boat, and then what you do is you bleed them. So like a okay. big yellowfin tuna, you'll cut right behind the gill plate, mm. it open, make a, a cut there, and then pectoral fin, lift it up, two fingers, right below the lateral line, make a small poke right there, and then that helps to drain out all the blood as quickly as possible. So you don't get what they call tuna burn. If the tuna is so hot because of its resisting, the amino acids in the tuna's muscle can actually turn the color and turn the taste to where it's not as attractive. Ah, Interesting. And is there a certain time of year when the tuna are coming kind of inshore or near the islands, or what's the kind of annual cycle of these fish? There is a direct relationship with the coral reef species and these tuna offshore, because every Mm -hmm. summer, these large tuna come close to shore to lay eggs. And every spring, the nearshore water reef fish, they spawn and their babies go offshore. And there's this huge soup of life that is occurring generally from, you know, five miles to a hundred miles offshore. And so the eggs that get laid by the tuna are fed upon by the juvenile reef fish. And the juvenile reef fish that hatch get fed upon by mature tuna. And so there is this beautiful symbiotic relationship that occurs. And we have to have healthy reefs with healthy reef populations to ensure that we have access to these tuna offshore. So wear your reef-friendly sunscreen if you go visit Hawaii. Yes. Don't step on the reef. You know, convert your cesspool so that there's not a lot of nutrients going in the Mm -hmm. ocean and, you know, causing algae to grow instead of coral. Yes. Do all of those things. Mm -hmm. So you have the juvenile in the up to 40, 50 pounds that tend to be around certain Mm -hmm. core all year round. And then you have what you call the summer influx or what we call the ahi run here in Hawaii, where schools of large yellowfin tuna and occasionally under the yellowfin tuna, you'll have the big eye tuna. So it's rare, but it's not unusual that you can catch a big eye tuna, but generally yellowfin tuna is the target of everyone. And I can assure you, there's nothing prettier than hanging on to a leader that's attached to about a 200 pound yellowfin tuna with its large yellow secondary fins sort of shimmering in the water below the boat as that tuna makes its circle as you bring it to the boat. And it's all lit up with its blue and gold and silver. There's nothing more exciting for a fisherman Mm -hmm. than having his hand at that point on that leader Mm -hmm. and just wishing for the best because if any place something's going to happen wrong it's going to be at that that's right by the boat right yeah so you mentioned the coloration and some fins and you also talked about you know the line ripping on the side of the boat and causing smoke so i'm kind of curious if you could just describe the shape of these fish and what they look like because they are built for speed they're incredibly beautiful i cannot tell you about the excitement, the adrenaline rush, the sort of sensors that get heightened when you're about 30 feet away from a yellowfin tuna that is making circles around the ocean under your boat and you just see it lit up. Mm. Neon blue, bright yellow, beautiful yellow sickles coming off the tail. You can actually feel its tail pumping as you try to bring it closer to the boat and it's trying not to come closer to the boat. And you get it to the boat to the point where you can gaff it and feel relieved. That two or three minutes is exhilarating. 
they're 100 to 200 plus pounds of nothing but muscle. And how would I describe it? Yeah, it's flat oval shape. Most of them are blue on the top, silver on the rest of the body. Some have some yellow stripes along the side. And the Allison tuna tend to be the most showy because of those large, what we call sickles. And mm-hmm. oftentimes the bigger ones, those sickles extend back beyond the tail. And, you know, like I said, there's nothing more exciting than to have one of those on the side of the boat, except for the original strike where the reel screams in protest because you got like <laughs> ripping off of it so quickly, you know, four or 500 yards in that initial run. And then afterwards, if you got a particularly frisky one, you're going to have a couple more 100, 200 yard runs before you can get it tired and get it to the boat. How did people used to protect their hands like before the invent of all these fancy reels that there are today? You mean, and even before that, before gloves, they yeah. didn't, you could tell a fisherman, he had the calloused hands. Okay. Oof. It's crazy. A lot, wow. of, lot of hand line. And then of course, the smaller tuna, skipjack tuna, very important because I think it's probably the most desired tasting tuna for raw fish or poke or sashimi. Once it gets to its adult size, the biggest that I've caught is 41 pounds. That's large for a skipjack tuna now, but there are historical records where some of the Aku boat fleet would actually be catching skipjack tuna in the 60 pound range. So I do think that over the years we've seen the maximum size generally caught be reduced. But if you hook up to a, like a 35 pound Aku or skipjack tuna, you think you got an ahi on the first run. And then after that, it tires quickly and comes to the boat. But just as pretty on the side of the boat because it has a lot more blue stripes that go across its body. And it's just like a round little bullet. And, you know, once you get one in the cooler, then the pressure is off because you got something to eat. Yeah, that's cool. I like your description of a bullet there. And I'll just take a second as a fish biologist to talk a little bit more about their form, because a lot of people kind of describe the tuna as sort of the epitome of evolution for speed and power. And, you know, kind of the ultimate fusiform fish. Some people even take it a step further and, you know, just call them tunaform because they are so, they're tapered at both ends. They have that extreme lunate tail that's so thin. They got all those little finlets that go from the dorsal and anal fins that you're talking about there, those big crescents that go from there, these just little diamonds down to the tail fin. And it's even gotten to the point that the U.S. military is like putting these guys in tanks, yellowfin tuna in tanks, studying their movements and the little vortices that come off those fins that make them so efficient. And correct me if I'm wrong, don't they even, like the dorsal fins and stuff, aren't there grooves that those can kind of like tighten in. in so that it's completely smooth over the top? It can all fold in and they can provide, I think in engineering, it's called a venturi effect. So the fish is larger in the front, smaller in the back. So that helps it cut through the water and at the same time helps it push forward. Kind of like an airplane wing, right? They're incredible. If you haven't seen a tuna, definitely look one up. And their swimming pattern, it's basically just the tail that they're moving. It's amazingly efficient. But, but you know, what's also incredible is they can pop these fins out in a dime and you know, like a, a professional football player running back can make a cut, you know, wow. in an instant because you got to be able to do that because something is chasing you, trying to eat you, right? So not only can they go fast, but they are very maneuverable and can make, you know, quick turns to get out of the way of, you know, marlin and swordfish and sharks and, you know, make a shark swim pretty fast too. So you got to be able to get away from them, right? Yeah. 
You mentioned the having live bait. So are these tuna hunting together for prey? What else are they eating? And I'm guessing some of their prey are pretty fast as well. I don't know if they consciously do this, but oftentimes they will partner up with dolphins mm. to keep the bait in a bait ball yeah. so that everybody can take turns eating the sides of the bait ball. They also have this unique relationship with the seabirds, right? So mm. tuna will push the bait up Seabirds will keep the bait from staying too close to the surface, and then they will feed in sort of a symbiotic relationship. And oftentimes you'll have mixed schools, especially when they're juveniles. You'll have skipjack mixed in with yellowfin tuna and big eye tuna. Mm -hmm. Or if you're fortunate enough to find some large debris floating around in the ocean, then you have this smorgasbord of a whole bunch of different tunas that take up uh, residence around that large floating object mm -hmm. for weeks at a time. And in fact, the American purseiners now in the last 20 years have switched their techniques where they're actually deploying fads off of the purseiners at sea, multiple fads. And what they'll do is if there's no open schools around, they'll go back and check and surround those fads because they attract the juvenile tuna. I've always dreamed of one day getting out into one of those kind of feeding frenzy where they're hitting the bait balls from the bottom sort of things that you were describing. What's that like from a boat perspective when they really get to boiling? It's amazing because the first sense that you get is the birds that are crying above you. It's just loud. It's a symphony of all different kinds of birds, different octaves. They're screaming because they're diving. <laughs> and then the water is just churning from the fish that are hitting the bait ball underneath. And then the bait, of course, are at the surface, jumping out of the water, trying not to get eaten. And this commotion gets your heart raising. Yeah, It gets your heartbeat going faster because as soon as you can get a lure close enough, you're going to get a bite. My heartbeat's going faster right now. Yeah. So yeah, so in the ocean, I mean, fish are going to be attracted to any kind of structure available, correct? So the fads that you mentioned, the fish aggregating devices, that's like a technique being used pretty extensively today? Or The state of Hawaii has a system of, I think it's up to about 30 buoys that they place in the ocean off the various islands to make it easier for fishermen to catch small tuna. It's part of sustainable fishing. It's part of, you know, not having to import into Hawaii protein. So yeah. but the tuna boats, on the other hand, they do it because it's more efficient, right? With some transmitters and recorders, they can keep track of where these fads are. And I think they're sophisticated enough that they actually have depth recorders on them and they can see when the biomass is accumulated enough to go back and surround one of these things. That's the technology that is available today. In terms of the purseining, though, it might prove to be detrimental in the long run because if you take too many of the juveniles, then you're going to have problem reproduction further down the road. So I think that we'll have to wait and see what the, you know, the data eventually shows. So purseining has more of the kind of bycatch of different types of species versus some of the other techniques where it's like a line or like a... It's sort of indiscriminate because you yeah. surround the whole thing and then whatever's there is what you bring up to the boat, right? So it'll include sharks. It'll include mahi-mahi. It'll include wahoo or what we call ono. But it also includes all the other fish that, you know, is bycatch and gets discarded like ocean triggerfish. I mean, mm -hmm. that's a great source of protein too that, you know, is a bycatch. And I don't think that they use it. It's dumped over the side. So not a very sustainable method of fishing if you look at the total holistic mm -hmm. impact. 
So when did the fishery kind of switch over from being, you know, going back way into the day of using this hand line and stuff to this more modern purse seining? And are there any real artisanal commercial fisheries left? In Hawaii, there is a, what is called a long line or 30 years back, they were called flag line fisheries, which actually have their roots in a traditional Hawaiian fishing method called a kaka line. So a kaka line would be deployed offshore, probably, you know, a quarter mile long at a time with floaters on both sides, a lateral line that's below the surface and then hooks coming off of that. But today that same system can be 25, 30 miles long. And you could have literally thousands of hooks on one set, which the longliners, the Hawaii longline fleet, we have 140 boats and you can see the impact that might have just locally. But then you multiply that by, there are several hundreds of thousands of longline boats throughout the entire Pacific fishery from all countries. Add that to the Persane large boats and fleets that are from Spain and Asia and America. There was a time where, you know, it was believed that the oceans could feed the world forever. Mm. It was sustainable. It could sustain itself. I do think that we're coming upon some times where we realize that's no longer the case. Now, but the genie's out of the bottle and we have to find a way to put it back in the bottle in such a way that can withstand all of the, you know, sort of political machinations from the countries around the world to do that. Fortunately, in America, and which Hawaii is part of, we have this exclusive economic zone, right, out to 200 miles. So that provides some insular protection for the domestic fisheries, but it also protects the artisanal fisheries that still exist. So there are still some folks that go out and flag line. There's a traditional form of fishing for yellowfin tuna off of the island of Hawaii on the leeward side in a place called Kona, and it's called Drop Stone. And so flat stones used to be taken out in the canoes and palu, chopped up fish, would be placed on the stone along with the baited hook and it would be wrapped around the stone and there would be a slip knot and then the fishermen would look for schools of dolphins along the coastline, get ahead of them and throw the rock over the side and at a predetermined depth, they would pull on that line and the slip knot would break. The line would uncoil with a baited hook and all of the chum would be dispersed at that depth and they would wait for the tuna that swam under the dolphins. And so that was a traditional fishery that still occurs today. Yeah. It's called ikashibi, but I'm told that before it was called ika, ika, of course, is cuttlefish. Canoes would go out at night and boats go out at night now and hold light over the side, attract the cuttlefish, and then catch some of the cuttlefish, put the hooks in them, throw them back over the side and catch the tuna that come in and feed on the cuttlefish that's drawn to the light. Off of East Hawaii, that's where the majority of the albacore that is caught in Hawaii occurs because it's it's a volcano, right? There's no continental shelf. You go a half a mile offshore and it's already you know tens of thousands of feet deep. So what do we know about the range of these yellowfin tuna then? Because I typically think of tunas as being a wide-ranging species in terms of individual use of habitat. It's really interesting. Some of the tagging data that has been done, not just with tuna, but other fish too, sharks, for example, you have main populations that have a range, right? But within that population, you have individual tunas 
that are, we call them ni'eles, or curious. And if you think about it, I mean, think about your own families, right? You have a core group that kind of sticks together. But then you have individual members of your family that are more adventurous and they like to go visit other places. So the tuna around Hawaii, we think, are generally regional. They move from the equator to the north in the summer and then back down to the equator during the winter. In general, you still have individuals that still kind of hang out. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the conservation measures around tuna, like locally? You know, you've mentioned fishing regulations, but what are some of the other ways folks are protecting and conserving tuna? Okay. Well, you know, we talked about the the importance of having lots of juvenile tuna around. So happy to say that I was part of a group that created a minimum size for the sale of tuna. So right now, any yellowfin tuna or big-eye tuna in Hawaii, the minimum size for sale is three pounds. It allows the juveniles to get up to a certain size where they can start to increase their chances of success. In terms of total catch or limits in numbers, right now there are none. And I think the fishery is sustainable at this moment. I do see a change in individual small boat fishermen's practices. Whereas in the past, let's say 30 years ago, they would go out and fill up their fish boxes to the max, then come home. Today, we have a lot more fishermen that will go out and catch one tuna because that's enough to feed their family. And then they'll go and catch other species of fish and then come home. What about like um, marine protected areas or fishing exclusion areas? You know, I'm, again, proud to say that we're part of a group that created the Papahanaumoku National Marine Monument, which was at the time the largest marine protected area in the world. But I am working with another group called the Pacific Remote Islands Coalition, which is seeking to expand the existing monuments for Jarvis, Palmyra, Johnson, and Howland and Bacon Islands, extending that out to the EZ and creating a national marine sanctuary. That would then create the largest marine sanctuary in the world and create that sort of marine protected area where We know from recent science that the spillover effect is real. We know that longliners who fish the boundaries have experienced increases in catches. Yeah, this is such a large geography and so many different players. I mean, that's a very complicated thing, it seems like, to manage fishes that are so valued by so many people. A lot of very cool stuff going on, it sounds like. Yeah, I think, you know, rather than managing large tracts of open ocean, What we need to do is pay more attention to island clusters and seamounts because that's where all of the upwelling occurs and that's where the tuna and the other species are going to be. So I think we could refine science and management if we, you know, instead of covering how many square miles there are, take a look at where they really are hanging out. Good point. So you're talking about like identifying these natural fish aggregating areas and trying to close those off as kind of rearing grounds? Is that what you're yeah, suggesting? Yeah, I think a percentage of those types of areas do need to be closed, if you will, to ensure sustainable recruitment so that you know, people can still eat tuna 100 years from now. Yeah. yeah. Do you have a favorite memory about fishing that you'd like to share? There was a day that we were fishing uh, about four and a half miles offshore. The buoy is called our buoy or Romeo buoy. And there were so many marlin around that all you had to do was catch a tuna and rig it up and drag it, you know, 300 yards from the buoy. 
and you would almost certainly get a marlin strike. Well, I had a chum line going. I had juvenile tuna swimming all over the boat, and I couldn't, for the life of me, hook one tuna, one juvenile tuna. And then I watched this little yellowfin tuna that was probably about five pounds. The water was super clear. It was blind in one eye. So the fact that it survived to that point is amazing. But I watched that tuna swim up to every bait that I tossed in the water, open his mouth, and then close his mouth and swim away. He didn't like anything. I couldn't (laughs) catch him. It was the most humbling experience in my whole life of fishing that I couldn't outsmart this blind tuna. That's awesome. It was a lesson for me that, you know, as smart as I think I am as a human being, there are things out there that sometimes are a little smarter than I am. Crazy. I know we're kind of coming on our time here, but have we missed anything that we should cover that you want to let folks know from your perspective about this fish or just Hawaii in general? So tourists, yes, come and eat. The locals are beginning to self-moderate. That's a good change that I've seen over the last 30 years. There's a much deeper respect for all of our resources, both in the ocean and on land. I think the upcoming generation is actually doing a much better job at reminding us to take only what we need and to be sustainable. And so I'm very happy at this point in my life that you know we leave behind a good environment and a good situation with respect to our tuna resources. I read about the word aloha and that a lot of people kind of recognize it as meaning hello, but does it have any additional meaning for folks to know about like in terms of respect? You know, aloha is such a multifaceted word. It is hello, it is goodbye, but it also is I care for you. It is also a genuine commitment to care for you. In the past, aloha was preceded by ekomomai, come in, let me feed you, you know, let me shelter you. And so I'm glad to say that it's alive and well in Hawaii, and it continues. And if I were able to create a virus with aloha, I would start injecting everyone, and we would have a lot less problems in the world. Aloha pandemic. Let's go. (laughs) Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Your wealth of knowledge. We really appreciate you. Appreciate the opportunity to share. Thank you. Thank you. Love to talk longer. This was awesome. Okay, we'll get out there and enjoy all the fish, especially the tuna, and yeah, help take care of those reefs and be a good consumer. Aloha, everybody. Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebeck, and my co-host is Guy Iro. Our production partner for the series is Citizen Race Car. Produced and story edited by Tasha A.F. Lemley. Production management by Gabriella Montekin. Post-production by Alex Brower. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Regional Office of External Affairs. We honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individual tribes, states, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish. <laughs>